Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. What's up, podcast fam? Happy Monday. Very excited for this episode today. Before we jump into it, please take a moment, share this episode with a friend, subscribe to us, Bits of Gold Podcast, follow us on Instagram, Bits of Gold underscore podcast. Today, my guest is Chris Hunter, formerly co-founder of 4Loco and now co-founder and CEO of Koya. Koya is a 100% plant-based protein smoothie made with simple and natural ingredients. I'm a health-conscious individual and these drinks are fucking delicious. I love it as a pre-workout, a post-workout, or even a midday snack. I highly recommend you check them out. Koya, you can view more on their site, drinkkoya.com. That is drink, K-O-I-A.com, or you can find them at your local supermarket. In this episode, we jump into Chris's incredible entrepreneurial journey, founding 4Loco, riding the crazy, crazy growth there, and all the legal backlash with their drink ultimately being removed from the company and now founding and growing Koya. I personally love the drastic change from building 4Loco, what uh, my buddies and I would call in college a, a knockout in a can, to building now a healthy, truly a healthy and delicious plant-based protein shake in Koya. We also dive into Chris's upbringing, what led him towards entrepreneurship, and what it was like for him to grow up uh, around family members that battled addiction to alcohol. One of my biggest takeaways in this episode was and still is Chris's goal to have alignment in his passions and his work. I think there is a lot of truth to finding ultimate happiness when you are doing what you truly are passionate about. And for Chris, that has been a guiding light in his professional career, uh, still is a guiding light in all he does. And I think there is really a lot we can learn just from that alone. Many more bits of gold in this episode. So with that, enjoy. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show today. So pumped to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So, you know, I was just telling you uh, before we started recording, came across your profile on Instagram. I've drinking your product before, the Koya. That's how you pronounce it, right? Yeah, that's it, Koya. You get that a lot or? Uh, not as much as we used to, but yes. Got it. Yeah, the first time I picked it up, I'm like, hmm, I just liked what I saw from the label and the ingredients and I was like, I don't know how to pronounce this, but I brought it into my fiance and I'm like, it looks delicious. And what'd you think? <laughs> it was delicious. It is delicious. So, you know, I, I saw your background, your story and felt compelled to reach out, get you on the show. One of the things that caught my eye, and I'm sure you get this quite a bit, but from Four Loco to, you know, a health plant-based drink, really interesting transition there. So really excited to dive deeper into your entrepreneurial journey today. Yeah, I'm excited to, uh, to talk about it. And it was quite a transition. <laughs> so normally I like to start these from the beginning. So maybe we could just take it back to wherever the beginning starts for you. Well, let's see. The beginning starts for me. Uh, I was born in Youngstown, Ohio and grew up there. So 
small city, uh, I guess you could call it a suburb of Cleveland. And uh, it was an old steel mill town and, um, you know, very blue collar. And that's where I grew up. And parents were 18 when I was born. And so I grew up with a big Italian family on both sides. And so lots of cousins. And although I was the only child until I was 12, I had, it felt like a bunch of brothers around me at all times. So I guess that's the start. I guess from the entrepreneurial aspect, somebody asked me this recently. They said, when did you realize you were an innovator? And I was like, I don't know, at four. And they said, you mean four months ago? And I said, no, at age four. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if that's the exact age or not. It was just kind of a joke because I feel like I've always had this interest in like just doing my own thing and creating things. And I don't, I don't know where it really came from, but I'm the kid that, you know, colored pictures and sold them in the neighborhood or bought bulk candy and sold it on the bus or there's a dozen stories like that of uh, kind of the early days of my entrepreneurial journey. So that, that's kind of where it all started. You were hustling young. I was hustling young. Yes. And, and I love that term. That's kind of how I identify myself as a guy. I didn't get an MBA. I didn't go to an Ivy league school. I do have a college degree, but you know, I feel like a lot of my success so far has just been the fact that you hustle and just make it happen. I love that. In high school or in college, did you have do you have a business? Was your mindset, hey, when I finish college, I'm going to pursue my own business? Or were you exploring getting a job or going more traditional path? I was kind of all over the place. I don't think I had a real clear path. I mean, nobody in my family went to college. I actually had one cousin who's a year older than me who played football and got a scholarship to a D2 school. So he was the only person I knew that was in college. So, you know, that was something that I, I knew I wanted to do and probably should do. I didn't really know what career I was going to pursue. I remember when I was young, I was in a in a class that offered um, some creative approaches to education at a young age, which was really valuable for me when I reflect back. But uh, we got to fill out some form and, and it told you what career you'd be suited for. And mine said marketing. And I didn't even know what marketing was at that time. <laughs> and then we got to do an internship. And I think I might've been in fourth grade. And they said, well, what internship do you want to do? I said something in marketing. And funny enough, Youngstown, Ohio, wasn't exactly you know known for big business, at least that type at that time. And so they said, well, we don't really have any marketing companies, but we're going to put you with, with a real estate agent. And so that was my internship. <laughs> in fourth grade? In fourth grade, I did an internship at a place called Bergen Real Estate. Yeah. And I got to work with the owner and understand it a little bit. I think there was something fascinating to me always about like kind of controlling your own destiny and creating something that didn't exist. And so I guess the first real close to legit business I would have, and I say close to legit, because again, the, the selling candy or I sold knockoff sunglasses, you know, all that kind of stuff. I had jobs throughout high school as well. I, the one that my wife loves to tell my friends is that I was a skate guard at a, at a skating roller skating ring. I worked in restaurants. I sold Cutco knives. I did all kinds of different stuff. And but in college, I started a promotions company, and this was back in the very early 2000s, like 1999, 2000. And you know, there are some guys. I went to Ohio State. There were some guys from New York that lived, or that went to Ohio State. They lived in Columbus, and they would always go to the different nightclubs, which was which was fun to me. I liked going to the the nightclubs, and uh, and they would invite me to their parties. And I thought I was special. I always get to go to the VIP section. And then one day, it was like this revelation. I was like, oh, these guys are getting paid for me coming there, right? (laughs) 
And the next thing that happened is I took a quarter off of school. I was moving to Cancun with a, with a spring break travel agency. And so I lived in Cancun for, I don't know, probably two months working with this company called STS. And one of the jobs was to stand at the door of the nightclubs and count how many people came through with the particular bracelet on. And I asked some of the people at the agency, I said, why are we doing this? Why do we care? And they said, well, we get paid for each person that comes through the door here. So I went back to Columbus, Ohio with this newfound like career of promoting, like I'm going to get, I'm going to get to go out the college kids dream and get paid for it. Like, this is amazing. And so, so I remember the, the first night I called up this nightclub and I said, Hey, I want to throw a party there. I had no clue how this worked. And they said, Oh, great. What night? And I said, what's your slow night? They said, Thursday night. I said, okay, great. I want to do a Thursday night. And they said, well, how many people do you think you can bring? And I said, I, I don't know, a thousand. And they said, <laughs> if you can bring a thousand people, you can have the entire door. And the door cover was $10 a head to get in. I said, okay, great. So Thursday night, we picked a date. I uh, went, used my buddy's computer. We made up some flyers. I was in a fraternity. So I went to all the fraternities and sororities, passed out the flyers, announced the party. And I remember I went there that night and I probably went at like 10 o'clock. And if you remember the college days, you know, nobody leaves their house until 1130, right? Well, yeah. And it was, it was 10 or 1030 or whatever. And I was like, oh shit, nobody's coming to this party. And I started drinking, sitting there, but basically by myself. And <laughs> 1145 hits and the place just got packed. And at the end of the night, I went up to, to collect from the owner of the club. And he said, we got 850 people-ish through the door tonight. And I was like, okay, great. I'm doing the math in my head. And he said, but that's not 1,000 people. And I was like, so what? And he said, well, I'm not giving you the door if you didn't get 1,000 people through the door. And I was, of course, livid. And he quickly agreed to pay me and did and then asked me to start throwing parties there weekly. Long story short, that is, uh, is the first kind of like really – I don't know, valuable business in the sense that brought in a lot of money. It's the way I paid my way through college. And um, at one point, I decided to come up with a name for that company, call it Fusion Projects, which later turned into the parent company for Four Loco. But that was the first one I can remember. Were you throwing parties every week from there on out? I started by throwing parties like maybe once a month. And then I started throwing them every week, like maybe Fridays. And then I started throwing them multiple times a week. And then I started throwing them in multiple cities like Ohio State. So expanded. So I expanded. And then I realized I was getting to be old, quote unquote old, because I was a senior in college. And I, and I wasn't going to be able to do this in a college town for much longer. So I started to recruit interns, the younger generation of the college, and they would help me throw the parties. And so it lasted for another year into after college. And then I decided it was time to move on to something else. What about when, when you were in Cancun? How long were you there for? I was there for probably six to eight weeks. And I, and I worked there, kind of learned what they did, understood what, the, what their business was. Got to talk to a lot of the bar and nightclub owners down there because we were the people that were bringing in the money, basically, you know, our company was. And then when Ohio State went on spring break, which luckily was at the end of that time, I quit and just hung out with my friends for another week in Cancun and <laughs> fortunately had met all the nightclub owners and everything. And so uh, we had a we had an awesome spring break and then I came home. I did spring break in Cancun when I was in college, my sophomore year. Yeah. So you know what it's all about. Yeah. I stayed at the Oasis. I think that's what it was called. Exactly. <laughs> I don't think my door like locked. There was no, it was a bizarre place, but um. Yeah, I guess that's spring break, right? That is spring break, and it was a it was a lot of fun. But uh, 
But yeah, that that moved into throwing parties in Columbus. And then oddly enough, uh, as things go, that rolled into meeting people and learning things that led into my first kind of real career, which was um, when I started Fusion Projects back in 2005, the, the alcohol company Fusion Projects with, with two college buddies. Um, so I'm curious. So you, so you finished college. You have this, you have, it sounds like a thriving promotional business. At that point, are you like, you already started working on fusion projects and the alcohol side, or when you graduated, were you thinking, hmm, what am I going to do? Well, there are a couple things. I mean, one, uh, the other thing I did in college was start a magazine with two other buddies. We started a magazine called Four Columbus Magazine, the number four. And, and the idea was it had four sections, right? It was like entertainment, personality, whatever it was. And we based it on what we saw in bigger cities like Miami and Chicago. There was a, there was a magazine in Chicago called a scene, Chicago scene magazine. And they were quarter page size, high design magazines that were handed out for free. And the idea was like, make money through ads, right? So we did that in Columbus. And I used it as part of my uh, credits to graduate. It was like a, an independent project. And we did it for like a year and a half. And we, we didn't run it fiscally responsible. And we didn't have enough flow, cash flow coming in. And so ultimately, that ended up going uh, out of business. And so I was still doing promotions. And I started bartending at a bar because I was just kind of sick of the promotional scene. And so I, I had a buddy who owned ba uh, a bar and I said, I just want to bartend there. And it was probably a, it was a great opportunity for him because he's like, yeah, this guy knows everybody he, he promotes, but he's just going to bartend here. And for me, likewise, it worked out as well. So that's what I was doing for the first year after college or six months after college. I had a couple buddies that I lived with who took jobs. One of them took an insurance job. Another one took a financial planning job. And we're living together and, you know, I'm on one side going, man, what am I going to do with my life? You know, what career am I going to pursue? And, and considering to your question, like, do I find a job in marketing or do I, I don't know what I'm going to do and, and accepting or coming to terms with the fact that if you start in some of those corporate careers, you start at the bottom and you work your way up, right? Yeah. And on the other side, unbeknownst to me, my couple of my roommates are doing corporate jobs and are looking at me going, God, this guy, like he's doing his own thing, even if it's just bartending. And so ultimately what happened is they quit their jobs and started bartending with me. And so that summer, <laughs> we all sat around like plotting ideas, what we were going to do with our lives. And, and fast forward, one of them wrote a business plan at that time for to be a commercial developer and took that plan to a company and showed it to them. They ended up hiring him and 15 years later, he has now officially started his commercial development company, which I'm a partner in. For me, I stayed in, or stayed in Columbus, was really getting to a place where I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was dating my now wife, but girlfriend at the time for like two years, we were kind of on and off. She was going to move. I was going to move. I was going to move to LA. She was going to move to Chicago. I could go on and on all these different tangents for hours. Ultimately, I came to LA. I hated it. I went back to Ohio, immediately hopped on a plane to Chicago. It was summer there. She was there. I loved it. I moved there. No clue what I was going to do. Six months of racking up debt, no job, just like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. Till it got to a point where I said, I have to do something. And I met these guys who seemed to be making a lot of money and they were doing, um, they were storm chasers, essentially. They were doing hail damage claims to, to roofs. First of all, I'm afraid of heights. I'm probably the <laughs> least handy person you know. But I'm hungry. And I was hungry at that time. I had to make something happen. I took the job, started working with them, was able to pay the bills. 
And then that's where I started looking back at my industry contacts, whatever industry, right? And business cards I had collected over time. And there was this funny thing that had happened when I was in Columbus promoting nightclubs. I had a friend who had graduated. She called me. She worked for a wine distributor. And she said, you know, we're representing this brand of, of spirits, of vodka. But their target is like beer and shop bars or nightclubs. And we only call on white tablecloth places. She's like, I know you know all these guys. Will you take us around for a day? I was like, yeah, why not? Whatever. I don't, I don't even know what we were doing. But yeah, sure, I'll take you around. So I took her around, her and this, this guy who was one of the founders of this vodka brand. And because of the alcohol laws in Ohio, they couldn't, it wasn't as easy to sell to the bars. So anyways, I took them there, watched them pitch the product to the bar owners that I knew, kept the guy's card. And, and that was that, just kind of stored it away in the memory bank. Well, fast forward, I'm in Chicago, I'm digging through my cards. One of the cards I find is this guy from this vodka company. He happens to be in Chicago. And so I basically bugged the hell out of him until he gave me a job. And that's how I got my first, uh, how I cut my teeth in the alcohol industry and in the beverage industry. I started working for him. So you actually got a job in, in the alcohol space. Yep. I got a job in the alcohol space. Um, it paid my bills. It was more interesting to me than, you know, climbing on roofs and doing hail damage claims. And, uh, and quickly I started to realize that while these guys were former Seagram's executives who had transitioned out of that company and started their own, they didn't seem to have it all figured out any more than I did. And that's one of the things I always like, uh, looking back, I always had was like a willingness to just figure it out. Like, I don't mm. know how it works, but I'll just figure it out. And I remember at one point, I was still doing the hail damage company at one point, still working for them on the weekends. I remember talking to one of the guys that one of the guys I was working with and I showed him the vodka product that I was now selling. And I said, who knows, maybe one day I'll start a vodka company. And he kind of laughed at me. And I think that like fueled me internally, like, okay, I'll show you. <laughs> and I was looking at these guys I was working for and I said, well, you know, they clearly have experience, but they don't seem to have it all figured out either. And so what do you think they didn't have figured out? Well, how to make a brand work, how to look, the brand was called Players Extreme. And um, I give them a lot of credit because they went out and did it right. And they, they just gave it a shot. But it's it's kind of the when I think about that name and that product, I think of it being the example of what happens when you get all <laughs> middle class white guys, middle aged in a room together to come up with what they think is a cool brand. Right. And it's yeah. So those were the kind of things I was like, well, I could maybe do this, but it gave me an opportunity to learn that industry on someone else's dime. And so I started managing uh, just bars in Chicago. And then I managed what they call off-premise liquor stores in Chicago or in Illinois. And then ultimately I was managing five states in the Midwest. And during that time, I was on what they called a sales blitz, a crew drive in California. And there was this brand called Sparks. That was uh, the original caffeinated malt beverage. And I saw it there and it, I was 24 years old. Like I was drinking Jaeger bombs and Red Bull and vodkas like multiple nights a week, right? It was yeah. really interesting to me. And I asked the store owner, does this stuff sell? And he goes, yeah, but mostly bums buy it. And it was shocking to me. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. This should be like a young person's, you know, like 24-year-old target market, not bums. And so anyways, that, that was the genesis of the idea rattling around in my head, I came back to Chicago. My wife and I, girlfriend at the time, were going to a comedy show in Chicago, this place called Comedy Sports. And it was a BYOB thing, right? 
And so we're driving up there. We stop at a liquor store and she runs in. She comes back out. She has Smirnoff ice. And she said, you know, I wish they had a pre-mixed Red Bull and vodka. I'm kind of tired, but it's just the two of us. I didn't want to buy a whole bottle of vodka. And this light goes off in my head. And I'm like, I was just thinking about this. I told her, I'm going to do this. She said, yeah, right, whatever. Just let's go to the show, right? And uh, I called one of my buddies from college and we started working on the idea. I called another buddy who was, uh, worked for a bank, so he was more into financing. And we came together in, I think it was probably September of 15. I quit my job and said, let's go for it. <laughs> it's a crazy story. So at what point were you like, let's, I'm going to quit my job and go after this? Did you, did you already have some some like progress you made or you just went like heads in? No, we we made some progress. So the first couple of months were like, as you would expect, how do you even make a drink, right? Like, what do you do? And luckily my partner in Arizona was in industrial sales. And so he had access to a more professional kind of community, right? So he started asking around and he found somebody that we paid to be a consultant and ultimately they did nothing for us. And so that was a dead end. And then he had asked around, he said that there, there are these things called flavor houses that we learned about. So we paid them and they created some formulas and flavors for us. And so we were sampling them, tweaking them, kind of coming up with the idea the entire time. Meanwhile, I had on one of my trips back to Ohio had gone into a beer distributor who would be the person to sell this product that I had met back in Ohio and pitched them on the product. And ultimately they said no, but through a roundabout way, I got them to say yes. And so we kind of, we had, we had proof that we could get it off the ground. We had a distributor ready to sell it. We had a product, um, not that we knew everything and there were lots of mistakes along the way, but, but there was a little bit of assurance before I quit that we would at least give this a go. Got it. Was it called four logo from the, from the get go? No, it was actually called four. It's funny. You know, the, the governing body for alcohol is very strict. They're called the TTB. And especially around caffeine and alcohol, which was controversial, like any names that we came up with, we had to run by them. So one, we we were going to call it diesel and they said, no, we were going to call it like, I don't know what else we were going to call it. Some things that suggested energy, right? And they said no to all of them. And my my other partner, uh, the guy that worked at a bank, he said, you know, you had this magazine that failed. It was called Four. He goes, uh, you know, this theory is hilarious, but he goes, you can't have a business with the same name that fails twice. So let's just call it four. There's four main ingredients. And so we said, okay, yeah, fine. Let's just do that. So the company was formed and it was named Fusion Projects, which was the evolution of the promotions business. And the product was called Four, which was the evolution of the magazine. And the justification behind the name was it had four main ingredients, which at that time were caffeine, taurine, guarana, and wormwood, which was the ingredient in absinthe. And uh, that's what we went with. How did it taste at the beginning? It was like a cherry berry flavor. It wasn't that, I mean, it was okay. It was, uh, it tasted like an energy drink or a soda. You know, it was only 6% alcohol, which, you know, for what Four Loco is now is not a lot of alcohol. So yeah, we gave it a shot and we started expanding. We got through distributors and, and then we realized it wasn't selling and we had to evolve. So Okay, so you launched this alcohol brand. At what point in the journey did you hit like, oh, we have something here? What was the tipping point there? Well, so in, let's see, the first year and a half, so 2006 to like mid-2007, we're just chugging along. We were opening new distributors and that was providing us revenue, right? But but the key metric in in any product is velocity. Like, is it selling through again and again, right? 
And it took us about 18 months to realize that it wasn't. We realized a little bit before that. But and so in, I would say, Q3 of 17, we were considering shutting down the business. And my two partners, their, their families had invested. No one in my family really had the money to invest. And so our plan was, hey, we're, gonna, we're going to start to wind this down. They were going to go try to get jobs in their old careers again. I was going to stay on because this is what I was doing anyway, selling alcohol. I was trying to get their money, their family's money back. And then I was going to either rat it out or close up shop. But we had this idea that we would try a higher alcohol version. And so we said, we came up with the idea of calling it four maxed and it was going to be 10% alcohol. It was going to be in a different color can and some different flavors, but ultimately what sold is it was higher alcohol. We said, we'll give this a shot. And if it works, we'll keep going. And if it doesn't, we'll shut down. And so we launched that in late 17. And by early 18, it started to work well enough that we stayed in business, but it wasn't setting the world on fire. My partner that lived in Arizona, he was seeing this product out that was in a 24-ounce can, and it was 9.9% alcohol. And it was caffeine and alcohol, so it was similar to what we did. And he said, we got to go in a bigger package. My mentality was there's no way somebody can drink 24 ounces of this stuff, especially if it's 9.9% alcohol. But we were looking at the data and it was selling. And so he was persistent and he said, Let, let's do it. We all said, why not? You know. And so that's where we created Four Loco. And when I knew we were onto something was when we shifted to the first distributor, which was in North Carolina. And what we would normally do is we'd ship a distributor product and then we'd call every week and say, hey, how's your inventory? Do you need more? Right? Trying to sell them more. And they would always say, no, we're good. We'll let you know. Well, this one, we called. And actually, I don't even think I got to call him. I think he called me and said, hey, you know that Four loco that you shipped us? You got to ship us more. We sold it all already. It had been less than a week. And so we instantly kind of collected and we said, we got something here. Well, the first time we tasted it, we, we tasted a fruit punch flavored product that was 11% alcohol and it tasted good. And I remember talking to my partner saying, man, this tastes like gold. Like we were we were sold that this was going to be successful. The second proof point was when we, we sold it into the distributor and he sold it out quickly. And so we knew we were onto something then. You know, I'm, I'm trying to remember, but I want to say like when, when I was in college, I'm 27 now, when I was in college, maybe like my junior year, Four Loco was really, it was in. Everyone was talking about Four Loco. When did you guys hit that viral point where everyone was talking about your brand? So we launched Four Loco in 2008, and by 2009, we were really hitting that stride. We didn't do any traditional marketing or advertising. We, we would literally sell the product to distributors. We focused on making sure it got from the distributor into the store and that there was in-store awareness, like point of sale. But this was the early days of social media. And so MySpace, I remember we had a MySpace page. MySpace was, was out. Facebook was just starting. YouTube was early days. And I think it was sometime in 2009 that videos started to pop up of Four Loco. And there was one in particular, they called themselves the Guap Gang, and they made a rap about Four Loco. And it got like 2 million views or something like that. We had nothing to do with it. But uh, I would say that was the moment we said, this is going viral. And then moments upon moments after that reinforced that it had officially gone viral. How many years between when you when you launched to like when you started where you're like, oh, we hit gold now. We struck gold with the business. Two. Uh, until it was, until it was viral? Yeah. It was about, about a year. Yeah, it was about a year that it went viral. And then, and then in about two, two and a half, 
we got sued by every government agency under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so let's jump into that. So before you get sued, I'm assuming you're having like monstrous success. Yeah, we were having massive success. We were building out our distribution network. So we went from a few distributors to about 325 to cover the entire country. We went from, I don't know, maybe five employees to like 130 employees. I mean, we were just on a massive growth scale. We weren't really building out the proper infrastructure in terms of PR and legal representation. We were doing what we had to do, but it was all sales, you know? And so we were experiencing massive success. The entire time we knew there was a risk. The government wasn't exactly fond of caffeine and alcohol pre-mixed, but they had approved everything that we did, Mm. both on the federal and the state level. And so in, it was either late 2009, I think it was early 2010, that we started to get some letters from some of the government agencies saying they had concerns. They weren't really supportive of what we were doing. And ultimately, our mentality was, hey, we're doing everything legal per your rules, so we're going to play by the rules. And ultimately, they came back and just changed the rules on us. But, uh, you know, that's the way it goes. Just taking a step back. So you're having this monstrous success. How, how old are you, 25? I was probably, let's see, 2008. I was, I was 30. Okay, so you're 30 years old. You're having monstrous success. What's like your family, your girlfriend? Is, is she a girlfriend then at the time? Or? No, she's not my wife. Your wife at the time. She's not my wife. It, it was pretty interesting because we, I lived in Chicago at the time. And, uh, and Chicago is actually one of our worst markets. And so the, the odd thing was I knew, my partners knew, my wife knew how well Four Loco was doing on a national level. But all of my friends in Chicago didn't really know. And so life was, you know, I, I was married. I was, I was 30. Like we had a big social network there. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I had, uh, let's see, I hadn't had any children yet. So it was, it was fun. It wasn't wild. We, we were not necessarily like the four local consumer of, you know, the, when we were a 24, 25 year old, but we were still out and active in nightlife and, and socially. So we had a lot of fun uh, during that time. In terms of your mindset, so, you know, it sounds like you had some time of struggle in the business, just in terms of getting it off the ground and to get it to a point where you realized you had you had a business there. Like, what was your mindset in terms of from the period where you have nothing, no one's really buying the product, you're not hitting velocity, as you mentioned, to when you start to really hit that scale, go up to 100 plus employees? I mean, how do you navigate that from a mindset perspective? Was your mindset, did you, did you reach points of like, ah, the shit, this, this isn't going to work? Or were you always sort of just in the mindset like, you know, this, this might just work. We just need to keep trying. Uh, in those early days, I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't really doubt too much that we would figure it out. I don't know that I could have imagined the level of success we hit with 4Loco. But like I would look at some other companies and people and there might be only two or three employees in a company. They're probably earning a nice living doing that. And so if that was the worst that was going to happen, I was okay with that. You know, So when we were looking at, when my partners were looking at potentially going back into their industries, I was like, this is my industry. And if I can make you know $100,000 or a couple hundred thousand dollars doing this, then that's great. Right? When it really took off, I don't know that I fully comprehended or even appreciated how how crazy it was and how unprecedented it was for growth of that rate and of this type. Got it. Okay, so the government changes their their ruling. Like, did everyone come after you guys? The FDA came after us. Eighteen attorney generals came after us. There were ultimately the FTC ended up coming after us. 
the other people in the beer industry kind of put us on an island. No one really wanted to, you know, go to bat for us. And then the other players that were in our space were, I mean, we were the largest. So they were just kind of like navigating the waters like we were. So yeah, we were, we were definitely put out there to figure it out on our own. And, and I think maybe to set up to potentially fail because look, the reality is in, in consumer goods, there's only so much space on the shelf, more so only so much space in the cooler. And when a new product comes along and takes it up, the big guys take notice, right? Mm. Well, the big guys had decided they weren't going to play in this space. Look, they had bigger fish to fry than we did. And so ultimately that created this like moat around us, this trench of like competition wasn't coming from the big guys. There are a lot of guys smaller than us competing with us, but we were really aggressive. And so that, that all came to a halt, but we were, I think we were pretty crafty and, and tenacious with how we dealt with it. I mean, uh, we got hung with $20 million worth of inventory that we weren't allowed to sell anywhere. We weren't allowed to ship overseas. We weren't allowed to do anything with, so we ended up destroying it. We, in some states, had to pay distributors back 100%. In most places, we did a split with them. We had to get really crafty to get through it, but we did. And the company still does well and performs really well and, and is strong to this day. They were coming after you because of the alcohol percentage, because of the combination of alcohol and caffeine? Good question. It was a bit confusing for us too. So <laughs> the heading was caffeine and alcohol are unsafe in a pre-mixed format. And so we were just trying to get clear. Is it the level of alcohol? Is it the level of caffeine? Is it the combo? What they ultimately ruled and the way they made the, uh, the law state was that artificially added caffeine to a malt-based beverage was illegal. And so that left huge loopholes for other people. We, we were too under the microscope to do anything about it. But you know, to this day, you have hard coffees now emerging and you have spirits with caffeine in them. But that's the way it got written. And so would you say, like looking back, would you say that because of the chain of events and so many people coming after you guys? I mean, I remember Four Loco was the talk of the town, like everyone was talking about it, especially for college kids. I mean, anyone who's I don't want to say anyone, but a lot of people in college, their mentality is I want to drink the thing that's going to get me the most fucked up. So do you think that it actually helped you guys from like a PR standpoint or did it hurt you guys because you had so many more headaches from like inventory? It sounds like you had to destroy um, and things of that nature. Yeah, I think we tested that assumption that any press is good press. And we would have happily continued to ride, fly under the radar because the people that, as you mentioned, that were interested in the drink because it fit with what they were looking for already knew about it. What all that mainstream awareness did is bring a lot of people who were not interested in the drink you know, to the discussion. But I do think that Four Loco is still the only one of that group of products that's out and, and viable to this day. And so what I do think is it created a, a vibe or a mentality around it, regardless of whether it had caffeine or not. It was known as the party drink, right? To what you just mentioned. If you were, if you were going out and you were drinking a Four Loco, you were making a statement for that night, right? It was going to be a crazy night. It was going to be a crazy weekend, whatever it was going to be. And I think that carried over and really created a brand image that has survived. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why it survived. Got it. So you have to destroy some inventory. Did you guys end up exiting the business or what does that look like? No. So over the next few years, we really tried to focus on diversifying because, you know, when, when you had this relatively large company, at least from what we started with, 
that was almost completely taken away because of a change of regulation. We said diversifying our, our offerings is important. And we went too far too fast in that. We tried to get into a couple of different categories like unrestrained. We spent some money on some machinery. And ultimately, we almost went out of business again. And we brought in a president of the company who's a former Heineken person. And he really started to run it and right size it and, um, and kind of get it running smooth. And then in, let's see, in 2014 or so, I would say, like, I always like to work on things I'm aligned with, right? And so at this point, I'm, I'm now 34. I my first son was born. Life was just different for me. And so while Four Loco was a very viable brand, I just didn't identify with it as much. And we were also going through some partnership struggles on who does what and do we all kind of get along in the way we work. And so what I ended up doing internally was focusing on kind of uh, partnerships or innovation. I was looking to either find a spirits brand that we could launch a, a malt-based version of, uh, like we were exploring that idea with Pinnacle Vodka doing like a Pinnacle Ice, kind of like a Smirnoff Ice, or some other partnership to grow the brand or the company. And so long story short, I was introduced to this guy, this brewer from one of our flavor houses. He was making this alcoholic root beer and he had no path to scalability, but he was making a phenomenal product, had a phenomenal backstory. So we ended up doing a partnership with that company, bringing that product in-house, creating the brand Not Your Father's Root Beer and scaling that. And that was my pet project within the company. Once we started to scale that, we had some debt on the company and my partners looked at it as, hey, this is a good opportunity for us to sell this and cure the debt. I was looking at it saying, hey, I think we should use this as an opportunity to get into different channels, right? We're only in convenience stores right now. So we could start selling into grocery stores and into bars and whatever it may be. Ultimately, I was outvoted. They might've been right. They might've been wrong. Doesn't matter. Uh, they, we ended up selling that brand to Paps. And so at that point, mm. it kind of became clear to me that like we didn't see the world the same. We weren't aligned on the way we move, would move forward. And so I tried to figure out ways for us to start separating. And you know, it's tough because those are, those are some of my best friends. I mean, I was the best man in one, one of the guy's weddings. We had all known each other since college. And it got really, uh, it got really nasty. And ultimately, to the point where one day I went to a trade show in New Orleans that they were supposed to come to. They never showed up. And that night I went back to my hotel room, opened my computer and had an email that I was fired from the company I had started. And so that really started a transition for me of, okay, what do I want to do? I, I had been looking for other creative outlets in the meantime. I did an Ironman during that time. I had to burn energy. It was just like very difficult time. And um, so I did an Ironman. I started investing in early brands and started to advise some young entrepreneurs. And so you know, that was kind of the official separation of me from Fusion. And those guys still, Jason and Jeff still run that company to this day. So we haven't had an exit. Got it. How do you, so you get fired from this company you started. How, how do you overcome that? And how, how old were you at the time? Uh, so at that time, let's see, my second son was born. So I was 35. I didn't know, like I come from a blue collar town, you know, work kind of creates your identity, right? I had never been in a situation where I didn't have to work. And so I was really struggling with that. Like, what do I do today suddenly, right? But I didn't let, I didn't let any grass grow under my feet, as they say. So, you know, I was trying to figure out what's next. And so I used a, a place in Chicago called Soho House, basically as my office. And I would go over there every day and just take meetings with as many people as possible and just, just talk to people and figure out what I wanted to do next. And um, 
You know, it was difficult. I also had uh, become part of a group called Summit Series in the past four years prior to that. And so I was meeting a lot of different people and entrepreneurs from all over the place. I decided to go to one of their events. And long story short, I would say a month and a half later, I found myself in Peru with a group of 10 entrepreneurs from around the world doing an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, which I had never even heard of before. And so there were lots of interesting things I was, I was doing to try to figure out what was next, how to fill the time, and kind of how to, I guess, get over what had just happened with my, with my partnership and friendships in some sense. Yeah. Did you work with a coach or were you just trying different things to figure out? Like, sounds like you were, uh, you did an Ironman, you go and do an ayahuasca journey, a ceremony. How did you ultimately move forward and move beyond that? I imagine it's, it's difficult to split up from a business that you help build friendships and partnerships that are your closest friends, et cetera. Yeah. I had been working with a coach prior to all of this, which some may argue brought it to a head but he really, he worked with all three of us actually. And he, he really kind of helped us get in, get in touch with and become honest about what we wanted, not only within the business, but with ourselves. Unfortunately, I wasn't working with him anymore at that time. So it was really just a matter of talking to and reaching out to as many people as possible. And what I came to realize is that what seemed like something that had only happened to me and a very unique situation was really common. And, and in fact, many partnerships broke up in that way. And so I think that was a bit comforting. This was kind of the transition for me into Koya. And so at that time, as I mentioned, I was into kind of health and fitness, which I've always been, but it was an evolving, I guess, evolving relationship with health and fitness around food and activity. So I did the Ironman. My second son was born. He was dairy intolerant. And we only discovered that by my wife becoming a nutritionist and really analyzing it herself. And so there were all these shifts happening in my personal life around that time. And so one of the things I did was start to invest in some better for you food and beverage companies. And one of those was Koya 1.0 is a, a, a company called Raw Nature 5, which I met the founders of that company that ultimately led, led me to partnering with and, and running this company. So I don't know that there was any set like formula or plan. It was just kind of navigating it on a day by day basis and being open to whatever was next. And in, in that time, we had decided we were moving to California. And so one of my partners had lived in Arizona the entire time. And so even though I was still employed by Fusion at the time, I figured, hey, he, he lives out there. I can work remote. We made that decision. It was obviously sped up by the fact that I got fired from that company. But um, there were just lots of transitions happening. What would be your advice to someone who's in a similar boat or who's transitioning, recently let go or looking for what's next, next et cetera? I think, you know, be open to conversations. Just talk to people. There's no need to hide anything. You don't have to be embarrassed or, you know, or feel isolated. Talk, the more people you talk to, the more options, you know, become available. And, and the more you realize whatever your situation is, is it, you're not the only one in. And then I, I guess the last thing would be just don't be afraid to take a leap. I mean, I was moving into an industry that I didn't know. I mean, I know the beverage industry, but mostly around alcohol. Was moving into non-alc, which was really a different world. And so I guess just be open to open to that. And so alcohol was never something that was not aligned with me. I grew up, again, my parents were 18 when I was born. It was definitely a mistake, right? <laughs> Luckily, my mom decided to keep me, but they gave 
being married a shot and that lasts about a whole six months. But my point is they were young and they were still growing up when I was growing up. My mom and I essentially grew up together. So my cousins and I, who are about my same age, we grew up in bars, right? Like Saturdays meant our family played softball and then we'd go to the bar by one o'clock. So alcohol was all partying, all that was always around, right? We our parents were in their early 20s when we were approaching 10. And so there'd be house parties. And, you know, you were talking about early hustles. I, re- I remember I was back with my family this weekend. One of, the, one of the early hustles of me and my cousins is we would all go to the lake and they would have this uh, giant party called a jamboree. And they would have stages with music and everybody swimming and, and dancing and drinking a lot. And my cousins and I obviously were very young and not able to drink. But we would go around and collect all the aluminum beer cans, crunch them up, bag them up, take them in and recycle them. Anyway, so there's always this interesting kind of like relationship with alcohol to the point where when I was promoting, I was considering opening a bar and a restaurant. My one cousin ended up opening a bar and a restaurant. But the juxtaposition of that is the entire time we had family members dealing with addiction. You know, my mom struggled with addiction since the time I was 12 until five years ago. I'm 42 now. So it was, it was weird crazy, odd, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, one of the drinks that I had co-created in Four Loco became so synonymous with wild partying that it would actually on the other side show up in AA rooms. And so my mom would tell me, well, I was at a meeting and this person started telling me that they, you know, they found themselves drinking Four Loco and, and, you know, talking about their struggle with alcohol. And so it was a really interesting thing, not only as a kid to deal with addiction, but you know, that was one of the things I had to kind of deal with and overcome throughout my life. And it was a relevant part. I, I fortunately was never, at least knowingly addicted to anything, maybe work. But, um, you know, it's, it's a big, important factor that I know runs in our family. And so when I talk about working on things I'm aligned with, now it was suddenly aligned with health and wellness, which I had always had been, but to a new level now that my son was born dairy intolerant, my wife was more dialed in than ever because she was a nutritionalist. And what really propelled me along that path was I did this elimination diet. I kind of thought all these allergies and stuff were bullshit, to be honest. I was like, yeah, gluten-free, whatever, you know. And I did this <laughs> program called the Clean Program, and it's, it's essentially an elimination diet. And you start to introduce things back into your diet after 21 days. And the first thing I introduced back in was gluten. And I felt horrible. I was, I felt, I was tired. I felt asleep on the couch midday. I was irritable. My wife's like, I don't know what happened to you, but you're acting like an asshole. So I'll blame it on the gluten. <laughs> but so, so it became more apparent to me that what you put in your body really matters. And so all that was kind of happening alongside the transition out of fusion, being fired from my company, trying to figure out what my life looked like, what I wanted to be doing, what work meant. And so I had invested in this company called Raw Nature 5, which was a this was in 2014, which was a plant-based protein drink. So vegan, dairy-free, and this is in Chicago. And I was the one of the investors that was local in Chicago. And so I became, I talked to the original two founders, Dustin and Maya, a little bit more than maybe other investors and started to get involved a little bit more in the company. And ultimately, as it went through a difficult time financially, I and two other guys from Chicago decided to fund it. And then I came in to help pivot it, co-found the new company and, and launch it. And so I found alignment in that new project, which was not what I was initially expecting to do, right? 
you asked what I, what I did when I was fired and my initial thought was I'll, I'll do something else in alcohol, but just being open to what came to me and kind of respecting where I'd come from and things that, uh, you know, were on my mind at that time with kids, I decided to jump into the better for you space and, uh, not, not that there's anything wrong no. with alcohol. I mean, I took a year off of drinking last year, but I've definitely drank again this year. It was just, it's just a really aligned project for me. So that's what, that's what I've been doing since is, is scaling, um, Koya, our plant-based protein drink. Love it. You personally exit for a local company. Did you want to go back? Like, was your plan always, I imagine you have, you know, some level of financial stability. Was your plan to always go back to work or did you consider, like, it sounds like you went on a journey for some time to try to figure out what was next. Did you ever think maybe I'm just done with starting these businesses or was never a thought in your mind? Well, the journey was both figuratively and literally, right? Yeah, when, when you talk about the, uh, the ayahuasca trip, but uh, not really. I had, um, we were talking about coaching earlier. I had a coach come in and uh, at one point and do what's called a disc profile. And he, he came to me on our first coaching session and said, hey, if you have any delusion of retiring and buying a boat and living you know, this peaceful life, get rid of it now. Because if you do that, you will become an alcoholic, addict, and divorced because you will drive yourself and everyone else crazy. <laughs> so I have a lot of Got energy it. around that stuff. But, but also, step back, I exited Fusion in terms of management, but not in a financial setting. I still own my third of that company, and they didn't sell it yet, So, or if they ever will. But so it wasn't, I mean, look, I've I was in a better position than I had ever been, but it wasn't like I was suddenly in a place where I never had to work again. So, Got it. That makes sense. So the better for you space. Uh, so we sort of talked about how you got involved in Koya. It sounds like there were a lot of struggles or hurdles there that you guys had to overcome. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of them. Let's see. I mean, so initially the way... It's a competitive space. <laughs> It's very competitive and it's complex, right? Uh, I'll tell you some of the learnings that I had is when you came from the coming from the alcohol space, you take alcohol, which is you know pretty stable in the sense of like it has a long shelf life. You you can't really mess it up too bad. I mean, assuming you know, assuming it's not counterfeit alcohol or something, but you add flavoring to it, right? That's what Four Loco is. When you get into what Koya is. It's complex. It's whole food ingredients. They there's living ingredients in it. They they can spoil easily. There's, it's just a much more complex product to make. And so our first struggle was like, how do we take this thing from being produced in a commercial kitchen where it may have you know, 10 days before it goes bad to making this something that has a few months of shelf life so you can scale it nationally? And now I'll give a lot of credit. My partner in the, pro, uh, in the project, uh, Dustin, the original founder and formulator, spent a lot of time with uh, food scientists and and at universities trying to figure out how we do that, right? But it was a big obstacle to overcome. A specific instance that I can think of as an obstacle is, you know, we're now at a place where we're, we had this product that was out in the market in about 30 stores in the Midwest, mostly in Chicago. We pulled off the market to give time to kind of get a scalable product that we know is safe, all that good stuff. But we get word that Whole Foods is going to launch us nationally as our re-entrance into the market. And this is the transition from Raw Nature 5 to Koya, right? From the branding and, and all aspects, the company as well. And we do our first production run and the distributor trucks are waiting outside of the warehouse to pick up product to ship for our Whole Foods launch. And I get a call that some of the product has spoiled. 
And so we're, mm. we're now like in a panic. The company is running on a shoestring budget because I basically came in and did the, the most recent round of funding. The previous in, investors had dried up. And I'm thinking this could be the end of this thing, you know? But you're in this dilemma. Do we ship product even if only 20% of it is spoiled and hope that it's fine? I mean, we knew it wouldn't harm anyone, but it could taste weird. Uh, ultimately, we decided not to do that, which was the right decision. We said, look, this is probably an early sign that the product is going bad. We destroyed it all. We did an emergency production run. We had the product out by the end of that week to still hit Whole Foods launch deadlines. But there's so many issues in building a company, especially in food and beverage, and then especially in natural food and beverage that uh, example after example of, of adversity to overcome. What would you say is next for you guys in terms of a brand? So the brand has evolved. It started as a plant-based protein drink. Our key was always that we were a complete protein. So we had all the nine, all nine essential amino acids. We tasted delicious, much like a milkshake, but we were very low in sugar. There's only four grams in the whole line. And that was our first line and, and it's done well. And it's in about 10,000 doors across the country, retail locations. And we started to to think about what can the brand be, what can the company be bigger than just one particular product. And what we decided is that we would launch into different product lines that all stayed under the heading of our mission, which is to deliver convenient, nutritious, delicious plant-based options to everyone. And so the next iteration of that was we developed the first plant-based keto shake, which we launched in January of 2019. And then we launched an elevated coffee line, so no sugar, MCT oil, some plant protein coffee. We launched that in January of 2020. We most recently, last month uh, in August, launched an oat milk super herb line. So we used oat milk as the, as the base. We put in ingredients like matcha and spirulina and moringa, just active um, super herb ingredients. And then we have some exciting innovation coming up. So we're, we continue to innovate. We know the brand has permission to go broader, right? It could end up in in a bunch of different places within the store, but refrigerated beverage is very competitive. And so one of our key initiatives, and I think a key to our success is that we have to stay focused right now. And so we're going to stay focused on the refrigerated beverage set. Got it. Yeah. I've, I've had uh, quite a few of the, nice. the keto shakes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess in terms of entrepreneurship, just as a whole, like what would be your general advice to someone who's looking to start a business or someone who even who has an idea and is trying to figure out, do I start a business? Do I, do I stay at my job I'm at? Obviously, that there could be a few different scenarios there. But what would be your advice to someone who has like an idea that they're tinkering with? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that early entrepreneurs make is that they think they have to quit their job to go all in right away. And I don't agree with that. I mean, I stayed at my, my job for six months, eight months while we were formulating the idea for four. Um, and Four Loco Fusion Projects. And, you know, you just have to be willing to hustle, right? So, uh, you know, there was plenty of, there's plenty of time in a day to kind of vet your concept, you know, talk to people, learn a bit, and you get to learn while you're on somebody else's dime in terms of providing you a living. So I think that's, that's first. Second of all is for me, when you get to that point where you, you know, you can't stop thinking about an idea or it's starting to consume your days and nights, just go for it. There's never a perfect time. There's never a perfect plan. We always talk about during planning session, the, the only thing we know for sure is that the minute the plan is finished, that it's wrong, right? And there, there's still value in creating <laughs> that plan. But like, 
you know, perfection is the enemy in, in this instance. Like you just got to go and just got to be ready and willing and know that you will figure stuff out because no matter how buttoned up the plan is, like I mentioned, it's always wrong. I could have never known that our first production run at Koya would spoil. I could have never known that our third large customer would be a, a very conventional, traditional retailer. And we didn't know if we were ready for that. I could have never known that the FDA was going to sue us at Four Loco, right? Like, you're just going to have yeah. to figure stuff out no matter how prepared you are. And so don't let that hold you back from, from starting. I love it. You've obviously been at this entrepreneurship thing for some time now. So what would you say has been like the single biggest lesson you've learned along the way? And I'm sure there's many, but I guess in regards to business, what would you say is like the single biggest thing that like you continue to carry with you? It doesn't have to be so focused on business if it's more around, I guess, life or mindset, things of that nature. I think it translates to all three of those in terms of life, business. What was the other one that you said? Mindset. Yeah, life, business. It, it translates all three with life, business, and mindset. And it's action and attitude overcome all. Like if you take massive action, if you're just the, the, the most active person in an industry, you're going to win to some respect, right? And attitude or mentality when you bring that positivity to other people, they believe you. They want to be a part of something. They want to get on that train. And so those two things, I think, are one consistent in, in all aspects of my life that continue to prove very valuable. Mm. I like how you brought up for you the importance of being aligned, I guess, with your life quite a few times. You know, you hear a lot of people or I feel like it is common that a lot of people are chasing financial success and it might lead them astray, it might lead them down a road where there's actually no alignment with what they're doing with in terms of personal purpose. It's just maybe they're pursuing some some dollar signs or hopes of and dreams of having some financial success, but they lack personal alignment, personal purpose and things of that nature. So it sounds like that's sort of been guiding light for you having personal purpose and alignment in, in the things that you're building. Yeah. I mean, I think that there there is no work life and personal life. There's just life, right? And and I've been around so many people who have decided to try to keep their work life separate than their personal life. So they may not talk to their wife or significant other about things that are going on throughout their day. And to your point, if you're just chasing an, an end result, which I'm very, I'm very uh, motivated and aggressive towards accomplishing goals. But if that's all you're doing, then you're going to lose some things along the way. And in the example that I just mentioned, like, great, if you put everything else aside and you end up achieving this financial goal, but in the interim, you've alienated your significant other and family and now you're alone, but you have a, a lump sum of money, like who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah, makes complete sense. We can start to wrap this up. I guess before we do, before we get into some of my final questions, I am curious around the ayahuasca. So like how did the ayahuasca journey come about? Were you called to that? Take me through that. I had I actually had someone on a few like earlier on the on the show who's done ayahuasca a few times or who's participated in a few different ayahuasca ceremonies so it's one of my favorite stories because of how it all happened and so again this is right after i got fired from fusion i don't know what i'm doing both with my time with my career and with my life right so lots of questions up in the air i'm talking to a lot of people i feel like i'm in this situation that has only happened to me in terms of being fired from the company I started, right? And as I'm having these conversations, I have a conversation with a, another entrepreneur in Chicago who shares that he had a very similar situation. 
private equity company came and invested in his company. They told him to take a vacation. When he came home or when he came back from his vacation, he found somebody sitting in his office and ultimately found out that he was not going to run his own company anymore. And I asked him what you did next. And he said, well, I, I packed up my bags and I traveled the world for three months. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, great. I have a family with kids. I can't do that. Sounds awesome. What else did you do? He tells me, I went to Mexico and did an Ibogaine journey. No clue what that was. And so I'm asking a little bit more about it. And he tells me it's a, a hallucinogenic and tells me all the benefits that came about. And he said, you know, you should go to Peru and do an ayahuasca journey. And just like, again, mentally marked it. Okay, whatever. I don't even know what ayahuasca is. Fine. So fast forward, I go to this event in Utah. And I mean, this is probably a week or two later. And I'm talking to people again, just very transparent about what's going on in my life and, and uh, tell this guy this story. We're on a bus on the way up to the top of the ski mountain. And he says, well, well that's crazy. What are you going to do now? Literally at that moment, I feel the phone vibrate in my, in my pocket. I pull it out. I look. The guy from Chicago had just texted me and he said, here's a contact for the person in Peru for that ayahuasca journey. So I look at this guy, his name's Chris. I look at Chris as I'm talking to him and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Have you ever gone to Peru or done ayahuasca? And this guy flips out. He's like, oh my God, I, you, you'll never, it changed my life. I went there last year and he goes on and on about it. He's telling me how there's this group called Entrepreneur Awakening. They take 10 entrepreneurs from around the world each year. And it was just a game changer for him. And so I'm getting excited at this point. And he said, but it sells out like a year in advance and it's next month. And, and I was like, oh, well, okay, that's not going to work. And my wife at this point had already said, hey, if you need to take, I had never traveled by myself at this point. She said, if you need to take a you know, week or two and go travel by yourself and just spend some time thinking through life, go ahead, do it. So anyways, that happens. I go ski the rest of the day. That evening, I run back into Chris because we're at a essentially a retreat. And he said, you'll never believe this. One of my buddies from New York was supposed to go on the trip next month to Peru. And he can't, he can't go. So there's a spot now. And he said, I'm going to introduce you to the guy, Michael. And you guys see what happens. You know, you have to be approved to go and whatever. I said, okay. Again, still not getting my hopes up. So he makes this introduction. I fly back to Chicago. That's that. Two days later, I find myself on a FaceTime with this guy, Michael, who's in San Fran and puts the trip together. We're talking. He's asking me questions. He said, you know, it's really important for me that the people coming have the right mindset to this trip. So we talked for about 20 minutes and he said, I think you'd be great for it. I think it'd be great for you. You're invited if you want to come. And I'm like, okay, can I, you know, can I tell you by the end of the day? So I go home. I tell my wife about it. I said, I'm going to be gone for 12 days, including travel. I'm going to have lit, little to no connectivity. <laughs> I know that we have a two-year-old at home and I know that we now have a two-month-old at home too. That's a lot. She's like, do it. So two weeks later, I find myself on an airplane. I don't know anybody. I've never been to Peru. I've never met any of these people. I land in, in um, Lima, transfer planes going to Pisac, wherever the transfer was. I meet a couple of the guys that are uh, going with me. I happen to chat with them. And I'm at this point, I'm meeting these guys and I'm like, man, I'm in over my head. These guys all have either done psychedelics, which I had done in, in high school or college, but not in a setting like this. Or very yeah. into this like self-awareness, spiritual, whatever realm that I have no clue about. And But anyways, I, I met them all. They were all great guys. It was an incredibly powerful experience. So much so that after 12 days of 
limited to no connectivity. When I landed back in Chicago, our house had flooded in the meantime as well. So my wife had to deal with all that. She <laughs> saw me. She said, I don't know what happened down there, but whenever you need to go back to Peru, feel free. So it was, uh, it was majorly impactful for me as a person and for my wife and our family. Were you scared? Yeah, I was nervous. Like I said, I had done psychedelics before, so I wasn't overly concerned about that. But, you know, you have to do a certain diet going into it. You're in a new place with new people. I don't know what's going to come up. I'm thinking it's all like work stuff that's going to come up. And that's not, not how it works. They, they say you get what you need, not what you want. And it was more about how I was showing up in the world as a person. But it was definitely scary. They tell you like, look, you're probably not going to be able to walk. And if you make go to the bathroom in your pants, like just go with it. Uh, this is just what happens. So yeah. Did you have any moments of like, um, like when you were doing it, do you have moments of, I don't know, were you bugging out? No, <laughs> luckily I, I, for whatever reason, I feel like I'm pretty mentally sound in those types of situations. Even if internally I'm freaking out, I didn't feel the freak out at all. The very beginning of the journey is, is pretty intense. It's when um, a molecule called DMT is kicking in. And, uh, and that's pretty intense. But once I settled into that, it was insightful. Yeah, but no major freakouts. There are a couple of people that had really rough journeys that, that time. When you're sitting there and you're seeing someone else freak out, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but it's a ceremony, right? So you're, you're taking this plant medicine, yeah. right? It's, it's, so you're taking this plant medicine and it's in a ceremony setting. Like I, I imagine that you're watching someone else next to you or across from you. I don't know, see whatever they're seeing or experience whatever they're experience, experiencing. And I feel for myself that that would be like, I would start to, to personally freak out. Well, you don't have the luxury of, of somebody else, of, of paying too much attention to somebody else. Of course, they're there. And of course, you're conscious enough to, to notice that. But it's an internal journey, right? And so I'll give you two examples of the external component of it, though. There, on the first journey that I did, there was a guy who went into a laughing fit. Like, and it was at an intense moment for me, for whatever reason, whatever was going on in my head. But he was laughing hysterically and loud. And it made me start to laugh and it lightened the mood, right? And the next day, he said, oh, I'm sorry to all you guys. I really feel like I probably ruined it for you. And I was like, dude, it was the perfect time and the perfect thing, right? On the flip side of that, there was, this was a different time. But there was a guy who was just sobbing and he was really going through something whatever he's going through i don't know what it was but in my mind i internalized that as if, as if he had lost children in his life and I, again i don't know for sure but so at, that ended up really working on me and giving me such an appreciation for my children and the time i have with them and so you know the saying is like anyone's journey is everyone's journey and so you know, the dynamic in there is, is really all what it's supposed to be. And you're going to get out what you should, should be getting out of it anyways. What would you say was, has been your biggest lesson from the, your ayahuasca journey? Probably the one that stands out the most is just appreciation. Like, d don't take things for granted. Don't take people for granted. Don't take the opportunity to say something to somebody for granted. Don't, you know, just appreciate more what you have and, and the moment you're in and, the people in your life and just a broad appreciation, I would say. Would you say from like a work-life balance standpoint, and I know that's like a, a term or phrase that some people don't believe in, some people believe in, but regardless of your beliefs, would you just say that you have, like you've evolved greatly as an entrepreneur as it relates to, I guess, how you look at 
work and life? I'd say I have a better awareness around it. So I, I believe, again, like work and life and it's all just life. But I have a, a greater awareness. Like if I'm here in my office for most of the day, I'm now aware that I have not spent time with my kids or my wife and I need to go in and, and really shut off and focus on them, right? Or, or that I have a team that's taken a lot of burden off of me or a lot of responsibility off of me. And I need to make sure that they know that I appreciate their work, right? So I think, I think it's really the awareness that I have about all that is, is much greater. Got it. Yeah. I think about that a lot. I mentioned to you, so I've been a serial entrepreneur since I'm 14. I've been involved with, started multiple businesses now. I'm 27 and um, I'm still kicking on this journey and I'm now engaged. I have a dog and I think about that quite a bit now, like these days, how my time is no longer just my time. And yeah, I'm always trying to, I don't know, it's something I'm trying to evolve and get better, get better with as I get older. Yeah, I mean, to that point, uh, that was one of the biggest insights I had during one of the journeys was I knew that my time wasn't only my time, as you said, now that I had a wife and kids, but I got to essentially experience it, which is a weird thing to say, but I saw myself through my wife's eyes and felt what she would feel or what at least I thought she would feel maybe when I either didn't show up or didn't show appreciation or whatever it was, right? And so not only did I yeah. understand that, but I actually felt it. And so it gave me a whole new like perspective around the impact everything I do say, time I spend has on other people, not just myself. Mm, yeah, I'm very intrigued by ayahuasca and I guess like the lessons that the perspective that it, it sounds like it's given you and other people that I've spoken with. But yeah, you know, I think for me personally, you know, I know I mentioned to you prior to starting this episode, I lost both my parents young, my dad at 20, my mom at 25. And a lot of the way I view my life today, uh, without a doubt, has been impacted by those experiences and that tragedy. But I like to say now, I almost reverse engineer my life. And I really live very consciously with the idea that knowing that I too one day will die, I'm actively thinking about uh, how do I want to spend my limited time on earth? And that's really the the question that I try to answer on a daily basis. And once, you know, if, if what I'm doing today doesn't align with that, then it's time for you know, some I, change. I, I love to hear that. And I think it's, uh, first of all, sorry to hear about your parents. I love to hear that that has helped you with that perspective because I think it's so important. It's something that so many people avoid. It's like, to your point, we all know that we have limited time here, but we choose often to ignore that point and act as if we don't have limited time. And the greatest gift, I think, in life is death because it makes it finite. It makes every moment important. I heard all these great practices that you can that you can do. One of them was around having kids where you put a jar of marbles and you put one in for every weekend until your kid is 18. And you realize how few, how short a time you have with them just on the weekend basis, you know, and, and it makes you then start to think, what do I really want to do with these weekends instead of wasting time watching TV and sitting around? Maybe I go build some life experiences with them or something like that, or my, even for myself. So I think it's really important. Mm, I love that. We can start to wrap up the episode. The last question I ask all my guests, my podcast, Bits of Gold, is, around, is all about facing adversity and building your dream life. So we covered a lot in this episode, but what would you say would be your bits of gold on how to build a life you love? That's a great question. Let's see. Bits of gold on how to build the life you love. Well, I think these are, it's cliche, but cliche sayings are 
cliche for a reason because they're used often and they're usually true, but enjoying the journey versus just the destination. I mean, appreciating that, you know, the journey is the destination and all these, these kind of like uh, adverse moments build your story. I think that's, that's really important. You know, appreciate the time that you have and the people that you have in your life and really be tenacious and, uh, and with massive action towards something you truly believe in. I think, I think those are, whether that's, you know, personal or business wise, I think those are, those are things that have really helped me. Love it. Chris, where can people get a hold of, of you or follow you? And I guess also learn more about Koya. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Chris Hunter on Instagram, underscore Christopher, underscore Hunter. Uh, you can find information about Koya on Instagram at Drink Koya, our website, www.drinkkoya.com. Yeah, I think that covers them all. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Can't wait for this episode to inspire the world. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Chris Hunter from Koya. Highly recommend you go try out their drinks, try out their products. They are delicious. They are healthy. They are amazing. Please take a moment, share this episode with a friend. If you like the content, if you like Chris's story, tag us on Instagram, bits of gold underscore podcast. Subscribe, bits of gold podcast. More to come. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love your podcast. This is gold. This is where it's at. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.